Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Thanks once again for joining us today. I have got a new friend. You always know that I love when I tell you that my guest and I have been going back and forth on social media since, you know, Al Gore invented it and this is not one of those. This is actually a, by by virtue of uh, my intrepid producer. Uh, he said, you know, there's a guy you might want to talk to is Scott McKay. He has written a book that looks very much like this. And it's called Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama. And that in and of itself might not do the trick for me because if I could tell you how many tweets I get every day where people just reminding me whatever, whatever it is that this is really about Obama. I don't, I don't need that. But it appears that Scott has done his homework. And more importantly, that Scott has been thinking about the big picture and the big questions for a very long time. He's a contributing editor at the American Spectator, which, as I told Melissa McKenzie, a mutual friend of ours, um, made me the man I am to a very large extent for better or for worse. And um, he has a website called the, the Hayride. Okay. The Hayride, Louisiana's premier conservative political commentary site. And so now that those of you who follow my YouTube career would know that I'm, I'm this, this is another new Louisiana friend of mine, along with, um, Valiant Renegade, who operates on a somewhat different channel and has a different focus, but like a good Louisianan, he is uh, a, a great American. But enough about me. Scott McKay, thanks for joining us today. How you doing? Thanks for having me, Ron. It's a pleasure. How how did you get into this hapless and hopeless career of, of, of <laughs> complaining about the... the yeah. Well, um, I actually, I believe it or not, I have Barack Obama to thank for this um, because uh, prior to my uh, deciding to throw my hat in the ring as a blogger and a pundit, um, I actually had a job as a corporate headhunter. Um, and I live here in Baton Rouge and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the sector of the economy that I was working in had to do with engineers and construction managers. And what that basically entails in this part of the world is uh, the petrochemical industry. And at the time, Obama had just been elected president, just took office. One of the first things that they were doing was debating cap and trade in Congress. And of course, the uh, the narrative that was being pushed at the time in you know the legacy corporate media was that, oh, this is going to be great for the petrochemical sector in Louisiana and the state's economy because all of these big, you know, uh, oil refineries, chemical plants along the Mississippi River are going to have to retool uh, for fewer emissions and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I was kind of at a, at a very interesting place to be able to, to gauge whether that narrative was true. Because I had two stacks of paper on my desk at the time. I had jobs to be filled and I had resumes of people looking for jobs. Well, one stack got very small. The other one got very big. And I started realizing I couldn't make any money while they were debating cap and trade because, you know, if you've ever seen the Monty Python meaning of life sketch where the, the, the Catholic comes home and he's got a zillion kids and he says, you know, the mill's closed. There's no work for any of you. I have no choice but to sell you all for scientific experiments. That's basically what happened at every engineering firm in Baton Rouge when all of the chemical plants and oil refineries were like, yeah, that turnaround project or that upgrade that we were going to do, you guys were going to bid on. It's canceled because if this stuff passes, we're packing up the entire thing and moving it to Brazil or India. 
Um, and so rather than boosting the state's economy, they were in the process of destroying it. Um, and I started realizing a couple of things. Number one, I probably wasn't going to make money doing what I was doing for quite a while. And number two, everything is politics. Like, it's not supposed to be that everything is politics, but everything is politics. This was 2009, um, and I ended up starting the Hayride uh, because Louisiana didn't have a, you know, a good conservative uh, media site. And so we kept it going for a while. Um, and, um, you know, it, it kind of led to some things. By 2012, I was writing a column at the American Spectator. Uh, and, um, you know, had gone on to write books, um, the, the, uh, racism, revenge and ruin, which you can see right here, the, 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 uh, the cover of it, uh, um, is my second political book. The first one uh, I wrote back in 2022, uh, was a book called the revivalist manifesto. Um, and if that rings a bell, it's probably because of the little mini controversy late last year, uh, involving, there you go, involving Mike Johnson, who wrote the forward, uh, and CNN, uh, using this book as uh, uh, the the platform for a hit piece against Johnson. Um, and it ended up actually spiking sales of the book and putting it in the bestseller territory, which thank you, CNN. I'm one of the very few conservatives who are in a position to say that. Um, and so, you know, the, the new book, Racism, Revenge and Ruin, uh, I don't credit Obama uh, in this book for uh, my genesis as a political writer, um, but, you know, I, the the transformation that he has engineered across the country, you know, touched me in this way, um, which, you know, is probably a lot less negative than it has a lot of other people. Um, and I think it's an important book largely because particularly on the in the center and on the right, we have not given anywhere near the. Um, I don't even want to say credit, responsibility to Obama that we should for the changes that have occurred in this country over the last 16 to 18 years. Um, not just, you know, from a question of public policy, though, those that actually is is significant, but also from, you know, culture and economics as well. Um, and the book touches, you know, very largely into that. Um, you know, the, the myriad of ways that Obama has has changed America uh, that nobody saw coming. Um, and it also does a very significant look into the background of who this guy was that, you know, if you're if you're a if you're a very well-read conservative, you're going to know most of, of that part of the book. If you're not, if and if you get your information from legacy corporate media. There will be an enormous amount of stuff in that book that you have no earthly idea about, and it will shock you um, because, you know, this guy is nothing like he was presented at the time or even after. Um, and yet the true background of Barack Obama directly informs the effect that he's had on the country. Scott, let's put aside the ideology for a minute. Mm -hmm. What's the magic what we know that Obama worked his way through the Chicago political system, which is an accomplishment of a sort, and that therefore he it, de it demonstrate, demonstrates a certain uh, a certain skill set. That's to be that's to be to be sure. Exactly, and and that and and mainly that he knows how, he knows how to get things done in politics. Uh, mm -hmm. But what was the magic? That is that that gave him all this leverage that you're talking about. Well, I, I think there's a couple of factors among many uh, that that are are probably most worth discussing. I mean, the first is if you go back and every June um, Gallup does a survey of race relations in America, and if you go back to 2007, um, the numbers they came back with were the absolute zenith of racial goodwill in this country. I mean, it was something like 75% across the board thought race relations in America were really good. Uh, and as a result of that, I think, you know, you had a, a time in America where people really actually saw the end of, you know, all of the, the race stuff in the country. Um, you know, you, I mean, you've gradually had a, a large increase in interracial marriages cutting across all racial lines. I mean, 
this is this is a a country that is desperate to eliminate race as uh, something that that we should even care about. And and we're the least racist country on earth. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. Most of the countries on this planet were actually formed as a result of, if not racism, then ethnicism, right? I mean, Turkey is for the Turks for the most part. The you know, UK is for the British. The you know, France is for the French. We're a country founded on an idea that's universal to everybody in the world. So by our nature, our national ethic is that we want to cut across racial lines and we want race not to matter. Um, Obama comes along at a time when the country was, you know, really looking toward the end of the race issue. And so he had a, a call it a marketing opportunity to set himself up as the healer, the guy who was going to once and for all make this go away. He was the first really credible um, black presidential candidate. Uh, you know, you'd had Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson before, but, you know, those guys were largely seen as, you know, race hustlers and clowns. Obama never really had the baggage of those guys, or at least not, it wasn't publicly attached to him, like with, with Jackson and Sharpton. So he was in a position where, you know, he could make a cross-racial appeal. That happened at a time when the Republican Party, um, which had been under the influence of sort of the Bush Republican crowd since 1988 at that time. So you were looking at 20 years worth of the GOP essentially alienating the American people uh, and particularly its own voters for quite some time. Um, you know, and I mean, this had been sort of this long running thing where the, you know, the Bushes would run, you know, if you'll remember back in 88, George H.W. Bush runs and he wants, you know, um, a kinder, gentler America. And there's the famous quote, you know, at the convention from Nancy Reagan saying, kinder and gentler than what? Right. Um, and then George W. Bush comes along in 2000 and he talks about how, you know, well, I'm a compassionate conservative. Right. Which implies that conservatism isn't compassionate, that you need a special kind of conservatism to, to have compassion. Um, and so there's this there's this underlying piece to Bush Republicanism, which is contempt for its own base. And that had metastasized, you know, through eight years of W, where you just had an exhaustion on the part of Republican voters and also on the part of America that you know, they were desperate to try something altogether new. So Obama comes along and his opponent is John McCain. Oh, but hold on a second. What, yeah. what about the W years implicated the race aspect? Any, anything? Not really. I mean, I, I think if you look at those eight years, what you'll see is that, you know, the, the country was warming up on over the um, um, uh, on the subject of race. There really weren't a lot of big racial divisive issues between 2001 and 2008. I mean, you know, the, the sort of uh, marquee event in that time frame was 9-11, which had nothing to do with race from an American standpoint. It was a very unifying thing. And in fact, that pretty much had, you know, uh, hung over the entire eight years of uh, the George W. Bush presidency, which was, hey, because of 9-11, we're doing these wars and all that kind of stuff. Now, everybody had sort of fallen off on the question of Iraq and Afghanistan and whether those were good things. But it was never, a, a, you know, there was no racial component to any of that. And okay. so, but, you so, know, so, and so you have, yeah. Well, I mean, and America basically feels that it's a piece on the race issue, that, we're, that we were reaching a point where it's worked. The sacrifices right. that we've made, uh, the, you know, the, the political sacrifices and the ethical and legal sacrifices, affirmative action, though, like those were worth it because opportunities there there's a growing black middle class whatever and the and the right. cities the cities are many of them coming back in a way that no one ever thought possible um and, certainly, and prior prior to the financial collapse i think that was absolutely true um, um but bush is bush i i guess for his part what you're, you're his part of it is 
he is not reinforcing the normal sort of conservative um, instincts of the people who yeah. put him into office. I, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, right. And so there was no, I mean, one of the things that you'll get just every time you look into what those eight years represented, you know, it's a missed opportunity because what successes they did have in that administration, they failed to politically monetize pretty much at all. Um, and, and so, you know, where you had, uh, a growing black middle class where you had, uh, at the time, decreasing crime in, in the, in the, in the cities where you had, I mean, like you had all of these positive things that were happening, um, largely because you had, you didn't have a great economy, but you did have a relatively, um, you know, competitive economy historically. Okay. Um, now, a lot of it was fueled by um, the housing industry, which was on shaky ground and had been since Clinton. And of course, that ended up collapsing and that informed a lot of what was going on. But, you know, fundamentally, you went in, in 2008, you had John McCain as the Republican nominee and very few Republicans had much interest in making John McCain president. I mean, this was not a guy who had an, an, a, an enthusiastic base of support among Republicans. And so along comes this guy, Obama, okay, who the value proposition of his candidacy was, we're going to put this race thing to bed once and for all, because this can't be a racist country if it nominates and elects a black man as president. So we're going to prove, like, you we're, know, we're now going to put the file, we're going we're gonna to put paid. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. This is it. We're going to do this. And then the race thing is over. And that value proposition was something that spoke to, you know, a deep need in the American people for a long time to, you know, call it the exercise, the exercise, the sins of slavery or segregation or whatever it might be. But like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of all this crap and not have to worry about it anymore? Right. Um, and Obama was instrumental in offering that to the American people. And right? I, understand, you know, so I, understand, now, I have no trouble understanding yeah. how he won election. I mean, I, there, there are obviously lots of other reasons. OK, I mean, McCain's campaign was absolutely abysmal. Um, the media's treatment of Obama was very one sided and completely um, well, I'd say it was completely dishonest, but fundamentally it was very incomplete because most people don't know much of anything about Obama's background other than the mythology that was established in Dreams from Our from My Father, which was his his first autobiography. Um, and so that was a factor. Um, you know, one of the things I argue in Racism, Revenge, and Ruin is that if people had known about, you know, Obama's true background, whether it's ideological, intellectual, and so forth, they would have absolutely never made this guy president. Um, but at the time, you know, what the again, the value proposition is not just that we're going to put the race thing to bed, but that we will bring to fruition, you know, the famous I have a dream speech by Martin Luther King in 1963, which is don't judge me by the color of my skin, but rather by the content of my character. And, you know, from the looks of it, Barack Obama was a guy who had achieved Right. At a level that we was like, OK, this is a guy, you know, he graduated Ivy League. He went to Harvard Law School. Uh, you know, he came up in in a big city, uh, you know, with lots of competition in politics, was, has been a U.S. senator. Hey, this like this is a guy who's on the move. He's obviously very talented. So this is you know, we make this guy president and we have now fulfilled the I have a dream speech. Right. Like this is this great moment that we can have as uh, as a as a country. And the payoff will be that'll be the end of race in America, which All right, constituted so the greatest bait and switch in the history of American politics. It didn't right? really feel like that, did it? I mean, he he continued playing the part well, well into his administration. Like Bill Clinton's first act as president was to get rid of was to make an attempt to get rid of the, the ban on homosexuals in the military. 
Right. And that blew up right in his face. And he had to back off right. from that. Right. Obama didn't make that kind of mistake. He, at least tone-wise... There's, I mean, there's something I can I can refute that with, I guess. But Yeah, let, but, let me, yeah. so let's, let's hear. Well, I, and then, I mean, there, it didn't get a lot of play, but the first sort of um, um, chink in the armor, I guess, would have been the new Black Panther case. All right. And the fact that Eric Holder's Justice Department dropped essentially the prosecution of these guys who were holding nightsticks out in front of a voting precinct in Philadelphia and telling old white ladies, you know, the black man's in control and you can't come vote. Right. I mean, it's like one of the most egregious examples of, of vote suppression right. uh, or voter intimidation since, you know, the Klan. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the Bush Justice Department which the remnants of it were, you know, we're trying to prosecute this. And they basically told him, look, we're not going to go after that. And that, that was how, you know, Christian Adams sort of became um, a, a famous thing because, you know, he, he publicly resigned and, you know, has gone on to become one of the, the most uh, authoritative figures when it comes to election integrity. Um, but there was that the, the big sort of departure and, you know, the, where the mask really kind of slipped off Obama was in the Skip Gates case at Harvard, um, which was in the summer of 2009. Uh, and Ron, I'm sure you probably remember this case. You know, Gates was a professor at Harvard and, you know, has gone on to do a bunch of PBS uh, series and so forth. And he's coming back to Cambridge. Uh, he's in an Uber Apparently his key doesn't work in the lock on his door. And so what ultimately happens is he and the Uber driver are beating the door down. And it's it's almost like a Steve Martin movie, right? At that point, the cop uh, pulls up because somebody calls the police. Hey, these two guys trying to break into this house, right? And so the cop comes and is like, you know, what are you doing? And of course, uh, by that point, he's probably frustrated or whatever. And he ends up basically getting in an altercation with the cop and he gets arrested for disorderly conduct. I mean, this is the thing where there ought to be some humor applied, like, oh, what a crappy situation, you know. Um, instead, um, it's, you know, it's a minor controversy at Harvard. And then Obama turns up and saw oh, the police acted stupidly. And we know that this is a, you know, pattern of, of police intimidation and brutality and mistreatment toward blacks and Hispanics and, and the whole country, like, stopped and said, wait a minute, this is not you know, what we what we had voted for. And his his approval rating dropped eight points in like five days. And so they paper this over with the beer summit, if you'll remember. Right, right. I'm a regular guy. Um, yeah. You know, and I think they realized, OK, like this is you know, we need it. We need to be quiet about the things that we're doing, which they were. Let me move things along. He, he gets into oh. office and he has his rocky moments. But meanwhile, he's obviously consolidating, he's making changes, he's consolidating power in ways that do not become apparent to most of us until much later. I mean, as a lawyer, obviously I'm paying attention to his judicial appointments, and it's painfully obvious that Eric Holder is an absolute crook, uh, yeah. not particularly shocking, um, but, you know, and he's an embarrassment in foreign policy. We're beginning to see that. Yep. You get you know, the apology that, um, tour, right? That, yeah. that, that inclination towards uh, making Iran uh, the regional hegemon in, in the Middle East, which, right. you know, all right, fine. When I say fine, I don't mean fine, but I get that. Mm -hmm. What is it, though? That wh how did, What was the secret sauce besides policies? What did he do that enabled him to make these changes, to make changes that would actually fundamentally transform America and its government. So, okay. So from a, um, uh, personnel is policy standpoint, right? You had the flood of radical leftists brought into the federal government in every agency that, that, uh, that they could. I mean, they put people in who were civil service protected, not presidential appointments. I mean, they, they went hardcore with, um, you know, wackos from uh, from the universities and from these left wing nonprofit profits and started funneling those people into the government to radicalize every agency of the government. Um, and then from there, what you had was 
a procession of events, and you're going to know this, these guys pioneered the modern uh, tactic of sue and settle, for example. Oh, gosh. You know, and, and yeah, and, and related to that were some of these cases that they had, for example, Bank of America uh, gets hit for its role in the financial collapse by the Justice Department. They make a settlement, but they discount the settlement amount, okay, by two thirds, if they will make donations to left-wing nonprofits who have a radical agenda, okay? You give a half a billion dollars to La Raza and you're gonna see them do a lot of damage with that money, okay? And so whether it's the Sierra Club or Earth Justice or all of, all of these left-wing uh, organizations ended up catching an enormous amount of money to do things that were not, they didn't support candidates, okay? They All of them started doing messaging operations with the money they were catching from the federal government to then turn around and rad radicalize uh, a, as giant chunks of the culture. And so you started getting an enormous amount of media attention on things like climate change. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden by 2010, 2011, I mean, the entire country started catching messaging about how racist we were. You never heard the, the term systemic racism until 2010, 2011. Okay. And there was a certain Vivek Ramaswamy uh, did a great job describing this in his, in his book, Woke Incorporated, um, where you had the Occupy Wall Street phenomenon. And then you had couple that with a bunch of money flowing into these nonprofit organizations. Um, but what diffused Occupy, okay, was that that movement splintered along racial lines. Okay, so all of a sudden it was, well, you know, uh, these Wall Street uh, organizations, these big companies, they don't, you know, they're, they're not... Um, you know, they're, they're screwing the, the, the working man and all this other kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, the Occupy people fell out because the black members of Occupy were like, yeah, plus they're racist. Right. And when the corporations saw that, they started, well, let's just heighten affirmative action into the C-suite. We're not going to change anything, but we're going to give some of these things brown and black faces and so forth. And the Obama administration greatly encouraged that. So by his second term, you start getting like anti-racist messages coming out of corporate America. Um, and particularly, you start catching the Black Lives Matter stuff after 2012. And, and at some point, I guess we're going to start talking about Trayvon pretty soon. But by the time Obama left office, Black Lives Matter was this fundraising behemoth catching hundreds of millions of dollars in corporate money. Uh, to push narratives that are like outrageous by any uh, previous standard. I mean, these guys were talking about how they needed to destroy the nuclear family in America, period. And which, which has nothing to do with Black Lives Matter, but they were pushing that as well. Um, and so you had, and, and I mean, I, you know, I don't, we could go on for hours about all the specific things that they did to empower these left-wing organizations that were pushing on these previously seen as bizarre uh, agenda items and made a mainstream because they had so much money and heft behind them. So they have the money because of these settlements mm -hmm. and they have the beginning of, of, of a level of buy-in on the corporate level. Right. And, yeah. and certainly in the governmental level with all of the people that he was flooding the government with. So... Corporations are buying peace. He's to some extent following the Jesse Jackson Rainbow yes. Coalition and Shakedown model. Yeah, that's that's the community organizing model that Obama learned from the very beginning of his of his professional career. Yeah, and this it, was you shake down corporations absolutely. And this was really sort of a boiling the frog sort of phenomenon, wasn't it? I mean, in other words, it wasn't as if we turned a corner and in the process there was a ninety degree change in or, in orientation. Everyone's right. in favor of equal employment. Everyone's in favor of affirmative action. Everyone's in favor of more black faces. Everyone's in favor of representation. The next thing you know, 
we're he we're here, dear white people. Right. Well, and the and the boiling the frog analogy is good, not just because of the basic, you know, turn the temperature up slowly, but the fact that it's water that you're immersed in. It comes at you from every angle, uh -huh. right? I mean, you know, like whether it's all of a sudden everybody that runs Hollywood, pretty much they all voted for Obama. Okay. So he made it acceptable and mainstream to push these hard left radical um plot points and cultural initiatives or aggressions i would say and, and this goes um, back they, they were afraid to do those in the past but all of a sudden they could pour those on and that's how all of a sudden you're remaking a movie and all of the you know previously white characters are black and somehow and, this is you know uh, it's justice and this needs to be done and everybody's like yeah, but, you know, so-and-so is a white guy. Like, he's always been a white Why are we changing it, right? Um, and But this but, is like, but, but so this is, is what happens when Hollywood does it, you know? And the irony is, so so is Obama. See, o Obama was a very white black guy, is. Yes. He doesn't have the accent that, a, that most black Americans do. He's right. not a descendant of slaves. Right. He is very elegant and charming uh, you know in in his way i personally have never met him but obviously had a, a certain amount of charisma mm -hmm. and he was a white guy that not particularly ideological he was he was a black guy that not particularly ideological white people who might not be crazy about a black candidate but who nonetheless felt comfortable enough to vote for, but also in office, this is kind of the point I was making before, he never really came across as a bomb thrower, even when he was doing, even when his policy stances were moving to the left and his foreign policy was so America last and the, and, and the apology tour. Right. On the other hand, he had his token drone strikes and he had his, his, you know, his, his, his he killed Osama bin Laden personally, right? In other words, he continued uh, at to least, play yeah, the game. I mean, that was the presentation for sure. Yeah, I think that presentation is critical because he's do all these yeah. things are happening behind the scenes, and alarm bells aren't really going off culturally in in, in the way that they otherwise might have been. I'm yeah. not even sure that I mean, and you know, and this this abuse of of the law enforcement system, you know, sue and settle, and this. The, the light bulb that went on when they realized that why don't we work with the Democrats running the cities that are being sued on civil rights claims and just get them get them to settle. It's not their money. Yeah. Right. And, and and while we're at it, why don't we get a whole bunch of um uh what, what are they called? Um consent decrees. Consent decrees, right. A whole bunch yeah. of consent decrees in Absolutely. place. Absolutely. That will make it impossible to enforce voting laws in in these cities, mm -hmm. um, and because we have the Justice Department entirely on our side. Okay, now it's two thousand and twenty four. Everything's gone to hell. This process, <laughs> and, and you have Obama, the only president ever to stay in Washington after leaving office, which which is a bigger point than anybody gives credit for. Um, right. I mean, the guy lives in Calorama. He's he's like right down the street from the White House. And there are limousines bringing people to see him every day on the hour, every hour to talk about politics. Well, he's very busy um, producing uh, fantastic content for Netflix. Right. I mean, uh, that, yeah. isn't that what he mostly does? Uh, well, that I mean, again, it's all look, it's all in the presentation where this guy is concerned. Right. Um, because. The the actual Obama, the actual effect, the actual things that are, that are going on, you know, like we're, I guess we're doing a lot of analogies in this podcast. You know, the other big analogy that we should bring up is, you know, the duck on the water, right? What you see above the water is very, you know, placid and pristine. The duck is just kind of, you know, slowly making his way across. Go under the water and what you're seeing is, you know, a whole lot of activity. And that is very much Obama. What does Obama want? He's fabulously wealthy now. Right. Certainly someone who's never worked for a living. Right. Um, he has been president as many times as he can be. 
he he was known as a guy. You can make the who, argument. You can make the argument and some, right? And right, right. What does is, is he really that selfless that he wants to spend the rest of his life just destroying the system now that he's got his? Is is he that motivated? What what what's your take? Well, um, and this is where we get into in the book uh, a, a a lot of his background. Okay, so. And, and the, I'll just give you the basic, basic thesis of the book and that I'm convicted on is that this is a guy who absolutely positively hates America as founded and is, you know, uh, all out to destroy the society that uh, that he found when he got into politics or adulthood or however you want to however you want to phrase it. This is a guy who has a deep disdain for regular Americans and not certainly white people, but not just white people. Okay, um, and to to explain that, let me kind of get in real quick to the four mentors who created Barack Obama. Um, the first one is a guy by the name of Frank Marshall Davis that most Americans know absolutely nothing about. Um, there is an argument you could make, and some have made it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make it here. Uh, but the argument is that Frank Marshall Davis is actually Obama's biological father, and the best uh, point in favor of that argument is that if you look at side by side by side pictures of Barack Obama, Barack Obama Senior, and Frank Marshall Davis, he very obviously looks more like Frank Marshall Davis than he does Barack Obama Senior. Okay. Um, so there's that. And and what Dave, Davis was uh, was a communist newspaper editor and columnist in Chicago and Honolulu. Uh, and if you go back and read the things that Frank Marshall Davis wrote for those newspapers, uh, first of all, they were vile. They were unbelievably anti-American, pro-Stalinist. This guy ended up on the FBI's security list. Um uh, as a result of that, plus the fact that they caught him photographing shorelines all over Hawaii, uh, assumedly in preparation for Russian and Chinese invasions of those beaches. Um, but the thing of it is, is that Frank Marshall Davis knew Barack Obama's mother, in fact, had taken naked pictures of her that he then sold to mail order catalogs, um, which nobody in America freaking knew about that. Uh, but... What is in Dreams from My Father uh, are 22 references to a guy named Frank, who is very obviously Frank Marshall Davis. Those references were taken out of the audio version of the book when it was released years later, when Obama was a national political figure about to run for president. Um, and Davis is clearly a important um, a mentor for Obama. They brought him, starting by the time he was 10, when he got... Uh, got to, to Hawaii and moved in with his grandparents. Um, from, from that point to the time he went off to college, they brought him around to see Frank Marshall Davis like all the time. And this was, he was sort of, well, he needs a black mentor and this is the guy we know who just happens to be a communist on the FBI's security list. Um, and, you know, Davis was, even in Dreams from My Father, Davis talks about in, in very negative and disdainful ways, the American way of life um, and the American system. So Obama gets to Occidental uh, and he's a committed Marxist at the time. Um, you know, so that was the effect that Davis had. Then when he goes off uh, to college, you know, he gets immersed in hardcore Marxism at Columbia. Um, but at the time, uh, the old kind of Marxist-Leninist socialist uh, uh, paradigm had been changing toward more something along the lines of a community organizing mindset. And that was what Obama got into. So, um, you know, he gets to Chicago, he meets Bill Ayers, who was a weather underground terrorist. Uh, you know, people know a little bit about who Ayers is, but what they don't realize was how much of an effect Ayers had. Ayers was the ghostwriter for Dreams from My Father. It's pretty clear that he was. If you analyze the, the sentence structure and all these other things 
of Dreams from My Father and Fugitive Days, which are which is Bill Ayers' own autobiography. Um, they're they're extremely similar. Had to be written by the same hand. So Ayers, um, you know, who Obama says I was just a guy in my neighborhood. Ayers got him in, involved, plugged him into hardcore left wing politics uh, in Chicago. Um, as he was a community organizer and, and, and there's that. So Ayers was a serious mentor of Obama and people don't realize how big a deal that is in that Bill Ayers turns out to be probably the most um, important and uh, um, um, uh, influential thinker on K-12 education in America. And the influence that he's had is to turn schools into woke indoctrination factories. Okay. So there's Bill Ayers's effect on, on the country. Then he goes to, to, um, uh, to a Harvard law school and his mentor there is Derek Bell, who is the uh, inventor of critical race theory. Okay. Um, and so there's that. And then of course you got Jeremiah Wright, all four of these mentors to Barack Obama are, um, of one mind when it comes to race, which is that America is a fundamentally unjust and racist country. And as a result of that, big changes need to be made in the way our society runs. Okay. And so this is, this is what built Barack Obama. And this is a guy who absolutely hates the country and its people. Um, you can actually, you, you mentioned the Obamas being the executive producer of, you know, Netflix stuff. Well, they did this movie called Leave the World Behind. Okay. And if you've seen it, you probably notice, first of all, race is injected into this movie in ways that like don't contribute to the plot at all. Right. Um, and those, and those injections are, were not there. The book was a best-selling novel that was turned into a Netflix movie and Obama got an executive producer uh, title on this film because they brought him the screenplay and he made copious notes on it to inject realism into the plot. All right. And so you had this race stuff. Uh, you've seen it in the trailer. There's an oil tanker that comes ashore, like on Long Island, like at the very beginning of this thing It's like, well, this is weird. You know, this is kind of like, the precursor to the world ending. And the name of the oil tanker is the White Lotus, which happens to be the first slave ship that landed in Jamestown in 1619. Which, okay. of course, is a complete invention. Guarantee you that that was one of uh, Obama's notes on the screenplay. But as you watch this movie, what you see is, okay, like it's an apocalyptic end of the world thing. And it's like not even a tragedy, okay? I mean, like th this is, unlike every other end of the world movie, there's always some redemptive kind of thing at the end. Or if not that, at least there's a lament that this great society we had is falling apart. There's none of that in this movie. I mean, so, it's like- So your, answer, it's your answer to this is that given given what he what he absorbed from his mentors, he is such a radical. He, in fact, is such a motivated radical that he's that he he the, the nihilism that is the really the Absolutely. hallmark of our yes. uh, of the op so-called opposition culture, which has become the de facto culture now, is right. It, is what is, is what there's he's no better personification of that. And nihilism is exactly the right word. Misanthropy is another word, but nihilism is an ex is a perfect word to describe like who this guy is. Um, you know, and I mean, this pervades everything. You had the whole bitter clingers comment that he made and you had the, the you know, that Philadelphia speech back in 2008 where he threw his white grandmother under the bus and then, you know, to save Jeremiah Wright. And then he throws Jeremiah Wright under the bus. Um, and I mean, it's just there's an entire pattern here of like he doesn't care about the things that came before. He throws the Winston Churchill bust away, was, uh, which I, everybody thought was a anti-colonialist thing from Barack Obama Sr. And you would think that until you go back and read the things that Frank Marshall Davis wrote about Winston Churchill in the late 40s. And you start to realize this was this was Davis. It was not necessarily Obama Sr. So 
Um, and then, you know, I could go on and on and on with all of these little kind of data points that show you how iconoclastic, right? And we tend to look at, you know, iconoclasm is like a good thing. But in Obama's case, it's like real iconoclasm, right? Like you never had anybody knock statues down before Barack Obama came. So, right? like, I mean, you know, believe it or not, people, uh, we've, I could talk to you for another hour, but... I don't know if anyone's going to be listening to us. <laughs> Let me just ask you, do you, is there any help? Do you think there's any way to fix yeah. this? Yeah. Well, what do we, what do, we and, do besides pray and do our best? Give me a good. Well, pr praying and doing your best is a, is a good start. We should define doing your best. Right. Um, what I will say is this. Um, the reason that team Obama and I like, you know, I, I count Biden as Team Obama. OK, sure. this is the Obama Redux administration. I think okay? everyone and all the decisions that, yeah. are being made by Obama and his people. Joe Biden is I mean, it's one of the reasons why Biden doesn't do obvious things. Right. Take the and I don't want to get too far afield on this, but take the border. OK, the obvious move is to shut that border down so that it stops being this this, you know, this sucking political wound for the Democrats that really threatens to turn this into a wave election in 2024. And that yet they won't do it, right? And it's because Obama's playing the long game, right? Bring all these people into the country. And if you can't make them citizens, their kids will be citizens and they'll be Democrats. And that will fix the de demographics of the country such that, you know, the Obama way will be the permanent way. He does that because he's not running for anything. Right. And if Biden gets beat in 2024, he's got the deep state. It doesn't matter. You know, four years later, we'll we'll put somebody else in and we'll keep the train running. So who cares? Right. That's what happens when you're a puppet president. You can't do the things that that you need to do for your own administration. So the point is. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is there's this temptation to look at America in 2006 and America in 2024. And see this like, wow, this is, you know, this is like a really rough natural evolution of society. And the answer is no, it's not natural. It's not organic. This was man-made. This was contrived and executed. Because it's man-made, it can be unmade by man. But, you know, and one of the reasons that these guys have gone to such lengths to try to take down Trump, okay, and I, look, I was a Ted Cruz guy. I'm not here to like, you know, give you the whole, oh, Donald Trump is the, but I, hear you. Trump I, I was a, I was a Cruz guy too. Yeah. Trump and Trumpism. Okay. Which America first MAGA. I actually wrote a book called the revivalist manifesto a couple of years ago that we talked about. I call, you know, that movement revivalism because it's older than Trump. And yeah. I think it's going to outlast Trump. Um, but a revivalist mi mindset, which is to say we're we're conservatives, but we're going on offense, okay, and we're going to actively roll this stuff back, and we have the courage to fight through what the Obama Democrats have done. All right, whether that means you know Angel Studios putting out better movies than Hollywood, so that you have a conservative mindset that's reflected in the culture, or whether it's you know Ron DeSantis down in Florida who is just rolling back all of the left-wing stuff or Greg Abbott bussing migrants to Chicago and New York and causing trouble for left-wing politicians uh, and making them suffer for what's going on on the border. Like those are the kinds of things that defeat uh, the Obama Democrats. Because the one thing is, is that mode of governance does not work. It doesn't produce good results. It's destroyed all of the cities OK, and so if you can impose accountability by going on offense and not just constantly giving up to these people and don't let them call you a racist when you're not one. Right. For example, um, take uh, what's her name? at uh, Claudine Gay at Harvard. Right. This is a plagiarist. This is somebody that doesn't have any individual merit. She's an academic, never written a book, wrote 12 uh, supposedly scholarly articles and plagiarized every single one of them. OK, and so she gets called out for that when she makes herself known as a pro-Hamas radical on on the Israel Gaza question. And people start looking into her and realize she's a fraud. So she's got to go down, despite the fact that Obama lobbied for her to keep her job. 
And when she goes down, the people who are criticizing her get called racist, right? Now, the Bush Republican mindset is that if they yell the R word at you, you shut it down and you run away from the field. You don't run away from the field. I'll never forget. You I mean, stay in there George and you Bush take was those the arrows who, and shoot them back. George Bush was the one who brought us right after 9-11, Islam is a religion of peace. Okay. You can, You know what? That is the perfect, perfect example of Bush Republicanism, right? I'm not going to take on, I'm going to take on the biggest fight in the world, but I'm not going to take on a hard fight. Right? Scott, we could we could go on all day. I I I I I like yeah. the cut of your jib, my man. I I'm looking forward to catching <laughs> up with you, with your writing. I'm glad we got to know each other. You educated me, and I am a decently well-read conservative. But you've nonetheless educated me. You put together put things together, and you did answer a question that as the one that I put to you, and it wasn't the answer that I was hoping for. Uh, I was kind of hoping that that what people were saying that, well, you know, Obama's a sybarite. He really just wants to, you know, live easy and float in his pool. No, he really wants to destroy it. it. There's there's we don't give this guy credit for just how evil and pernicious the effect on America he's had. Purposely so. I mean, this, he's you know, this is a guy who lives on Martha's Vineyard and he won't stop lecturing us about climate change. Like, you know, you have to ascribe very, very evil motives to somebody who will do that, right? Because you know he doesn't believe what he's saying. So there's something that underlies it, which is he wants to, he want, the guy wants to hurt you. And, the and people don't want to believe that about Obama. And the Democratic establishment goes along with this because they see it as a path to continued power because of- Yes. Because, yes. Because after all, what would John Kerry be doing? Caucus vein, don't get it done. Obama does. That's how does why John Kerry remain? And why is he even remotely relevant? Because these people have give him, given him a, 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 an utterly un, you know, undeserving person. They they have co opted the the old liberals, right? There's very very few liberals left yeah. in American politics. Okay, I mean, basically, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are probably the only ones, and RFK Jr., who they've thrown out of the Democrat Party. The old liberals, Chuck Schumer being a good example, are now leftists, and we as conservatives need to stop calling these people liberals, right? Because Obama destroyed that label and moved all of these people Schumer's into not, the hard Schumer's not even a left. He is a completely transactional creature. I, I mean, he, he is a truly despicable, same thing with, with Pelosi. These people have no principles whatsoever. It's about the insider right. trading, staying in office. Scott, Correct. thank you so much for your uplifting and 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 sunny <laughs> so, but, but it's stuff, it's stuff we have to know. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to, as I said, to staying in touch. And thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks, Ron. It's been great. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.